Welcome back, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins. On this occasion, once again, a Guy and Smith-flavoured podcast. Following our third excursion into Crab's territory, we're extremely lucky to be joined by Guy's daughter Tara to talk about growing up with a successful author for a dad, his history as a second-generation novelist, and our work to get those novels back into print. Here's a little bit about Tara from her bio for the upcoming Tales from the Dark Side week at Tamworth Castle. Tara Paulson, near Smith, is the second eldest of Guy and Smith's four children. She was born in Litchfield and lived in Tamworth until she was four years old. In 1977, the Smith family relocated to a remote house on the Black Hill in Shropshire when the success of Guy's horror novel Night of the Crabs led to a deal with Amicus Films. Inspired by both her imaginative father and a talented grandmother, historical novelist E.M. Wheel, Tara loved the creative arts as a child and later obtained a first-class BA Honours degree in English Literature at York University. She went on to study acting and musical theatre at Mount View Conservatoire in London and worked as an actress, composer and musician for ten years before changing direction to be a researcher, writer and editor at Chambers and Partners Legal Publishers. Tara now lives in Sweden with her husband and children, where she runs her own English music and drama school. She also oversees Black Hill Books Limited, owned by the remaining Smith family since Guy's death in 2020, and which will republish works by both Guy and Smith and E.M. Wheel. Now those folks that listen to this podcast regularly will know that we've talked about Guy before, but for those perhaps tuning in for the first time, here's Guy's bio from the same event. Guy Newman-Smith was a successful author who began writing as a child in the 1950s and subsequently had hundreds of books, short stories and articles published until 2021, a little after his death in December 2020. His fiction genres included horror, fantasy, mystery, detective, children's and westerns and he also wrote a considerable amount of non-fiction on topics such as nature, countryside pursuits and local history. He was born in 1939, the first son of published historical novelist E.M. Wheel, in the village of Hopwas, between Tamworth and Litchfield, Staffordshire. Guy was best known for his horror writing, in particular for his eight-book Crabs series, beginning with his 1976 bestseller, Night of the Crabs, written at his Tamworth home in Browns Lane. Guy eventually ran his own publishing company, Black Hill Books, which is now owned by his widow Jean and their four children and run by his second daughter Tara for the purpose of republishing many of his works. As well as all that, as if it weren't enough, Guy was a champion pipe smoker, beating 30 other smokers at the national championships in 2003, and of course, he wrote a book about pipe smoking too, and as well as being a keen shooter, in 1961 he designed and crafted a 12-bar shotgun, and he continued to use the Guy and Smith short-barreled magnum until the end of his days. So, sit back, Pack your pipe, caress those well-thumbed paperbacks, and join Tara, Graham, and me as we talk and learn about Guy and Smith. Okay, well, we've we've just hopped back into Derry and Tom's, and we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Tara Paulson, Guy and Smith's daughter tara welcome to Derry and toms and thanks so much for joining us thank you it's a pleasure you know we have graham and i have slightly different entries to guy and smith 
back in the day at school when I was 13, 14, things like James Herbert came across my sweaty palms and I read things like that. But for some reason, Guy and Smith never did. Although I do dimly remember seeing Night of the Crabs on uh, a bookshelf in a local newsagent's. But for whatever reason, I never picked it up. But then three years ago, when we did our first Halloween special on this podcast, I put Night of the Crabs on the pearl and the patrons chose night of the crabs so we covered it and then we covered crabs moon and we've just done crabs on the rampage because we're addicted to cliff davenport and it's uh, been a, a really fantastic journey and we're now kind of have this mini obsession even though we're a michael mocock podcast with this mini obsession with guy and smith now graham you've got a much longer history with these yeah. books haven't you yeah, so I, I probably started reading uh, some of Guy and Smith's stuff around about when I was about 15, 14, 15. Um, not to give away my age, that was quite a long time ago. Um, and and then I sort of stopped reading it for a while. And then I think a few years back, I found um, the Crab's Human Sacrifice in a in a charity shop. And Did well, because that's one of that's the rare one. That's one a, no one can get hold of. Yeah, yeah. I think Andy, you could manage to get a copy of that as well, didn't you? I did. Yeah. As soon as you showed me the cover with the crab holding the sacrificial knife, yeah. in front in front of a, a a big ornamental crucifix, I thought this is the greatest book cover I've ever seen. I've got to yeah. own it. So yeah, so I picked that up, and then I realised I had in the past quite a few of his books that I just sold uh, stupidly when they were weren't that. <laughs> That expensive but but yeah then i started collecting them again but mm. I've, I've been collecting quite a lot of of the other books that your your dad wrote uh some of the you know things like moles and and their control and things like that so have you got um what's it uh, ratting and ferreting i haven't got that but <laughs> it is one that i'd be tempted to get because i've always wanted to have ferrets my my grandfather used to have ferrets and my uncle and um yeah it's one that i'm tempted to buy yeah now you've also got um, better country living there, haven't you? And I have, yeah. I, we think you may be on this cover, Tara. I am. Um, I've actually, I think I've got my eyes closed. Yeah. But I guess I'm to the well. If you're looking at the cover, I'm to the right of my mum with a sort of Albany. Yeah, hair. yeah, that's me with the, with the lettuce. Is that a lettuce? <laughs> <laughs> Just so people know what we're talking about, we'll have to put this picture in the show notes, won't we? So when you were that age, for example, how aware were you of your dad as a writer? Oh, very aware. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't escape. <laughs> I mean, not that we wanted to, we grew up with it and we didn't, I suppose we didn't question it, but you know, the, in the kitchen when we, where we ate in, you know, the old fashioned days when we ate round a table together, um, all the walls were just plastered with all his book covers. So, you know, you'd be in the morning eating your cornflakes looking at, um, you know, a skeletal face on the cover of Doom's <laughs> Life or whatever. Um, and uh, so, yeah, and all of Dad, I mean, Dad was a workaholic. Mm. Um, he he never really took a proper day off. Um, so he, he would walk around with stories in his head or if he was having problems with a particular publisher, he'd be talking to Mum about that. So, yeah, it was, uh, there was no attempt to keep it from us and there was no shame you know I, I, I know it's pulp horror and it's it was you know very gory um lots of sex and stuff um but but we don't none of us felt any shame over it and hmm. it just seemed it just seemed to be normal because that's what dad did there shouldn't be 
any shame about any of this either. Yeah. And just the other day, I was looking at a couple of James Herbert New English Library paperbacks from probably the early 90s when they got rid of the gaudy covers and just made them plain. One, one was plain gold and one was plain silver, as if they wanted people to read these books on the tube or on the bus, but not to have anybody else know that they were reading something like this. But for people like Graham and myself, these are an art form and yeah. they're, they're, they're part of our very makeup. And this podcast is all really about genre fiction, what you could describe as pulp fiction. But it's incredible how many people out there, um, this was formative stuff for them, just as much as anything else. So I think it's wonderful that there was no sense of shame or anything mm -hmm. like that. But you say your dad was a workaholic. It was incredibly prolific, wasn't yeah. he? Because yeah. when he was writing these horror novels, he was writing three or four a year for New English Library and writing them for other publishers too. And he was writing articles, um, the, the countryside stuff. Um, he was a prolific producer of garden produce. So and then there was his pipe smoking and he made his own tobacco. Um, he, so he had all these and his sh shooting um you know, shooting for the pot, really, um, rabbits and pheasants that we ate. That was our that was our meat. We didn't eat beef and pork. <laughs> and, you know, that that's what he. So how he fitted it all in, I I just don't know. But it was at one stage about four horror books a year on top of all the other stuff he was doing. Mm. How did he become a writer in the first place? Was it just something he was born well, to? Almost certainly, that there was an element of that. His mum, my gran was um she was a, a published historical novelist by by the age of 17 but her career if she was going to have a career was thwarted by you know getting married to a bank manager and mm. um, all of that stuff went out of the window and i think she encouraged her two sons my uncle lance and my dad to to write from a very early age and both of them had short stories published in the local newspaper, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was called the Tettenhall Observer. And my gran was, I think, the editor of the children's and women's pages. So she got my dad and my uncle writing stories for that, um, which they both did. Um, I think dad just enjoyed it more than my, my uncle did. Um, and she also p paid my dad to produce um a comic and i've got them all here there's about 50 comics which he wrote with different characters um and illustrated and she kept them he he made money from my gran from his mum, um producing those so by the age of about 12 he was having these short stories and a lot of them were serialized in the tettenhall observer then he was pretty much forced to go into the bank by his dad i think he he had wanted to go on and you know, maybe go to university, do journalism or something, but he wasn't allowed to. Um, and he was very frustrated. He didn't had to do his banking exams. He absolutely hated it. Um, and he wasn't treated particularly well by some of his colleagues because, well, for a start, he was a bit of a joker, a practical joker. So he, <laughs> he played jokes on everyone. Um, but also he was the son of the bank manager. So, um, so in the end, he got put into one of these jobs where they drive around in a van with a helmet and it was i think meant to be some kind of punishment but for dad it was perfect because there was a lot of sitting around in the back of a van and he suddenly realized he could write 
while he was doing that. So he'd be sitting there for hours and he'd just scribble away. Um, and he realized that actually what was sort of supposed to be a demotion was perfect. And so he started writing whenever he could, whatever he could. Um, he went through a phase of writing a lot of glamour fiction. So he you know, went into a news agents, you know, bought 10 of the top shelf magazines, read them all so that he could learn what the formula was. And he just, he, he just churned it out. Um, and then I suppose he must have, yeah, he met my mum and I came along about a year later. And it was around that time when he left the bank and became a full-time writer, because I think by then he'd had enough published to think he could just about make a living off it. Mm. Um, and then a few years later, well, 1976, Night of the Crabs happened. But by then he'd already, I think, written three, um, I think Night of the Crabs, was that his fourth uh, horror novel? So, so yeah, and then it, after Amicus Films came along and um, did a book deal, um, sorry, a film deal with Dad, um, that was his opportunity to go, right, you know, we're going to move to the country, I'm going to live the dream, and he did. He did that. That's really interesting because I had read that Amicus had made a deal to make a Night of the Crabs movie, and I think later on it somehow got mashed up with a potential Doctor Who script. Yeah, that, that came to light last year, yeah. Right. So what was that all about? How did that come about, and why didn't they make a Night of the Crabs movie? Well, I don't know the full story. I'm, um, I, did, I was in touch last year with... Um, Milton Subot, one of his sons, Milton Subotsky's son, um, Sergei. And that was when this script turned up at the BFI in London. Um, so dad didn't, he didn't seem to know. So in his autobiography, he thought that when Milton Subotsky died, that the, the estate had just sold off the rights. And there was, um, you know, a trashy B movie called Island Claws that were made that had, that was very similar, and Dad just thought, oh, you know, he couldn't prove it. He didn't particularly care too much. I think he cared more that it wasn't a very good movie than anything else. But he, that's what he thought had happened. But that isn't what happened. Um, I mean, Milton Subotsky did die, but um, this Doctor Who script was made with King Crab, and. Well, it wasn't made, but the script was written by a married couple um, who are who are now um, they've both passed away. It's a little bit complicated with the rights, but I'm hoping that we can chase it up. Um, so that script, somebody owns that script somewhere. Yeah, so we'll have to see. I'm I'm unclear as to who owns the rights to the Night of the Crabs film or the making of the film now, because um, I'd quite like to know that. I'm running Dad's estate, so that's mm. that's one little thing i need to research yeah we'll, we'll ask you about the work that you're doing with your dad's estate and getting things in print in a wee while but just sticking with the 70s now night of the crabs was a phenomenal success and sold in vast numbers so even before the film rights being option that must have had like a transformational effect on your dad and your family's life in terms of just becoming that full-time everything is full steam ahead and equipping him to basically write i don't know 100 novels however many he wrote well certainly um it's it's about 80 horror between mm. 70 and 80 horror novels i i mean i was so young i was three when that happened um i do remember dad when i was about three i do remember him 
locking himself in this room and occasionally coming out to shout at us to be quiet because, you know, there was three pretty young kids and four in the end. And I also remember the big move to these Shropshire Hills um, because we were living in Tamworth, quite a, you know, a suburban area. And all of a sudden we were just plopped on the top of this hill on the Welsh border. But when you're that age, you don't really question it. But it wasn't as if dad's son, it's not as if we suddenly became rich and famous. It wasn't, um, <laughs> dad was very down to earth. So, you know, there were no gold taps in the bathrooms. It was just, um, hey, that was his chance and he just went for it. He he loved it. He never, ever tired of writing. The more he could write, the happier he was, I think. I mean, even when towards the end he went into hospital, um, he was still he was still asking nurses for scraps of paper and regaling them with tales of his career and coming up with ideas for new things, which sadly, you know, we'll never know what they would have been. Mm. But he I just think he thought perhaps he couldn't quite believe his luck, but he wasn't going to sit around and think, oh, now I've made it. He he just thought this is my springboard and he jumped. One thing is, it seems that he he didn't really turn anything down. So he he did stuff for Disney. He did all sorts of other writing. Was that just something that he just wanted to try all genres or just try anything he could put his hand at? I think he was probably um, pleased to be asked. I think he knew that he could turn his hand to different styles. I'm sure that when he was writing the, the novelizations of the Disney films, that that wasn't what he wanted to keep doing. Um, he was probably conscious of having four kids and having, and my mum at that point wasn't working. So he, I'm sure he was thinking, well, I have to pay the bills. Yeah, I, I, I just, I just, he was just an incorrigible storyteller and writer. I think it wouldn't have occurred to him to turn it down. I mean, that's, a, that's a more interesting question. Actually. What, <laughs> what, if anything, did he ever turn down in his career? I don't know. <laughs> Almost nothing. <laughs> I'd, I'd be interested also because um, I, I know I mentioned moles and their control. Um, the, the thing I really love about this book is there's a, a one of the chapters is about the history of a, a mole catcher. So he's researched this guy and gone gone into quite quite a lot of detail. And his writing is amazing, really. It's it's, it's really good. And I get a sense that the countryside stuff is was like a real passion for him in a lot of his novels there's that whole element in there, the whole sort of country pursuits and his deep knowledge of the countryside. Was that something that he really enjoyed writing? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm always surprised when obviously every writer, every everybody who creates anything has their detractors. And there's plenty of people who, um, you know, knock my dad sometimes and, you know, so it's formulaic, it's, it's trashy, it's, you know, they'll have pop at the grammar or whatever. But actually... Some of the writing of the the, the, the nature, um, the countryside is absolutely beautiful. I'm surprised that people don't mention it because a lot of the, these books I would have read in my teens and I hadn't really noticed it then, perhaps because it didn't seem so incredible. We were living in the middle of you know the countryside and talking about hearing a curlew didn't seem so unusual. But now going back to it when, you know, these... The characters in his crabs books are, you know, crawling through heather or bogs, and they they hear a they hear a bird and they know what it's called. I just think, gosh, that's absolutely wonderful. That's incredible. And I, 
it's quite educational actually even for me I think oh gosh I didn't you know I didn't know that he I knew he knew a lot about the countryside but the degree to which he knows what he what's there how nature works is is something that I wish people picked up on more um just actually after he died um I went back to because I'm living in Sweden now um, I went back to the UK um, for the funeral and the night before I stopped in one of the rooms that was just packed. Well, every room was packed with books, but one of the rooms I had, um, I suppose the books that I don't didn't normally pick up, the horror novels were in, a, in another room. And he wrote for The Field, I think it was called The Field, and I just picked one up and I found, I mean, it must have been, you know, three in the morning the night before the funeral and I probably had a few glasses of wine. And I found a piece about some ravens and he'd found a raven's nest that he watched over. This was nonfiction, obviously, not yeah. a story. Um, and it was about these buzzards attacking a raven's nest and how the ravens managed to keep the buzzards away and save their chicks from being buzzard food. And the writing is perfect. I mean, the grammar, the syntax, the the beauty of the descriptions is, is wonderful. And... I just thought, gosh, there's so much more to him than people realise, but especially people who just say, oh, I once read a book and that was enough for me. I think, well, Dad had just many sides to him and I think he probably knew writing, you know, about giant crustaceans, you know, eating intestines like spaghetti bolognese, that's the way you write for pulp horror. But, of course, that's not the way you write for... Um, you know, a, a smart, glossy, hardback countryside book, and he could he could modulate between the different styles. Um, and I think, you know, he, a lot of people called him a hack, but he was quite proud of it. And he did he had a very thick skin because people did say all sorts of things, and he 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 genuinely laughed laughed it off. Whereas I'm more thin skinned so if people had said about me some of the things. They said about him, I, I think it would have hurt and perhaps I would have thought, perhaps uh, this isn't for me. Hmm. He wasn't like that. that There's was... always a, a movement, isn't there, in critical circles about things that are popular to denigrate them and run them down. And we did make the observation when we were talking about Crabs on the Rampage the other evening that there are at least three occasions, there are three incidental characters, as you as you suggested, who we get treated to three or four pages of really detailed, beautifully written musings on birds, on their observations, on... He obviously had a deep, deep knowledge of these things. Now, if this was an Ian Fleming book and he was investing the story with his knowledge of and passion for ornithology before Bond goes off and jumps into bed with a Russian agent and kills some people, it was Ian Fleming, so people didn't have a problem with that because Ian Fleming is acceptable because he was part of the establishment. This is no different. This is no yeah. different. Okay, you do get a little bit of whiplash when you go <laughs> from those three pages of beautifully written countryside knowledge about these characters, and then, as you mentioned, they're getting their entrails eaten in gross detail <laughs> for two paragraphs. You do get that sense of whiplash, but that just makes me love it even more. Yeah. Sorry, Graham, I spoke over you there and interrupted you. Yeah, I was just going to sort of mention, because I've read um, a few of his sort of children's books around the countryside about the fox and, and things like that. And, and they're, they're so different to the, to the horror writing. But it sort of gave, 
gave him that opportunity to write even more about the sort of countryside and in depth. And and I, I found, especially the one I forget the title of it, but about the the fox and and that I just found it quite haunting. Yeah, rap. That's it. I just found it quite. It you know, it's just the struggle of a fox, and it's just quite. It's also the way he he always writes about nature's battle against humanity and how right. humanity is just destroying nature all the time. And it just you know those those, those children novels are, are really good. I really enjoyed them. There's there's a lot of that. I mean, there's there's some of that in his, um, even in his in Bats of Out of Hell that yeah. comes quite a lot as well. I read that, reread that um, in the pandemic just after he'd reissued it. And uh, I was so struck by his understanding of what what humankind is doing, um, and he wasn't um, he wasn't the sort of environmentalist that would, you know, try and break into a turkey farm and release them. That that wasn't his way, but but he was horrified that people didn't didn't understand conservation and his part in it. Because as I've as I've mentioned, he he did like to go out and shoot a pigeon and get mum to roast it, you know, and eat it. Um, and some people would balk at that because um, everyone has you know, different thresholds. But that for him, that for him was living off the land and being part of nature. But he did not enjoy them, the sort of shoots where people would shoot dozens and dozens of birds and not even take a brace home to eat. That didn't appeal to him at all. And it, he wouldn't have been outspoken about it because he was part of that world to some degree, but he just saw it as utter waste. Um, and, and, you know, so, so he, would, he would see what we're doing. I mean, a few years ago, while he was still alive, of course, we were talking about the environment, but I, I just think he, feels, he felt that we lost, we've lost the balance and, the, and he saw that quite early on, I think. So, yeah, it's interesting um, reading the books. And of course, I was a child when he wrote, and a teenager when he wrote a lot of this. So it, it, it's strange coming back to them as an adult, because I now hear the adult voice as an adult instead of hearing my dad's voice, you know, and obviously, you know, thinking about how he sounded when I'd been naughty um, <laughs> and, being, you know, I was being told off. Um, and now, of course, that's, that's not how I hear but he's, I can hear his voice. I can hear his voice when I'm reading his, his work, whether it's a, a horror novel or um, a piece of countryside writing. And it is lovely. It brings, it, it, it brings him to life. Even now, uh, that's also a challenge, being his you know, daughter <laughs> um, at times when I've got to sit down and go through his emails and find a contract. Sorry, I've probably jumped the gun again a bit to um, no, no, it's fine. come to. But... <sighs> You know, at times when I have to read his emails, um, it just just the other day I had to go and looking looking for an option agreement, and I had to scroll through emails from you know I don't know twenty fourteen and mm. it's very odd. I'm sure lots of other people these days are in that situation when they lose a parent who's who's left behind an email account. So it's not mm. nothing special to having had a writer as a dad, but I do have to trawl through a lot of that. Um, mm. And so at times I had to take a break, <laughs> just walk away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, having lost my mother in late July, I can empathize very deeply with that experience. So 
Yeah. Now, during the pandemic, you mentioned that you'd read Bass Out of Hell again. And just how much of his material did you start to reabsorb? And when you did so, were there any that really leapt out at you as as being personal favourites? Oh, um, well, I went back to The Lurkers quite recently. Um, and I hadn't reread that since I was at school. And that, well, I was allowed to read that because I was going to... <laughs> It wasn't very wise, but I, I decided I was going to do it. We were asked to do a talk on a book at school in our English class. And I stupidly thought, oh, I'll do that. But I asked my parents, and they did look a bit startled. And I remember them looking at each other and saying, well, maybe the Lurkus is okay. And what they were saying, there's not too much sex in that. She <laughs> um, but I hadn't read it since. And I do remember really enjoying it as a page turner. And of course, I Gosh, I mean, I can't remember exactly how I felt when I read it when I was 15. Um, but I, the whole thing happens in, my, in our family home. As I was reading it just about a month or two months ago, the whole thing happened. So I don't know if that's, if that's really where he said it, but it felt as if it was in our house yeah. on Black Hill because it's quite close to the Stone Circle which um, is an old, ancient, um, possibly a place of worship. Um, and I've been up there a few times um, since Dad died because it seems he talks, he references it so much in his books. So I'd say The Lurkers definitely was a favourite um, and it didn't disappoint. Actually, I, I, it was better than I had remembered coming back to it. Um, so that's a favourite. I think the crabs, of of course, um, Dad is just so associated with the crabs. So they they jump out. I I particularly like the Sabat books because the the cat the character is a little bit more complex, different sides to him. You know, he's had a few dalliances of all different kinds, um, and I particularly liked the the Sabat too, where he goes off to Switzerland and um, so changes. Dad, I think Dad does location particularly well and i i really enjoyed the sabbat books even though there's quite a lot of you know naked orgiastics <laughs> and i and i think those books well it was i i think there was a little bit of a craze at the time when he was writing them for satanic worship it was mm. a lot of the writers were writing about that um and i think a lot of there was a lot of hand wringing in the media about you know the influence of these books and how people were imagining that there were all these satanic people out there inflicting things on their children <laughs> and it seemed to be a bit of an obsession of the time um so i'm glad that's faded because i can just see i can just read the books and enjoy the fact that you know they've got these mad rituals where they you know <laughs> drink, drink someone's blood and you know that's fine. um just a bat definitely what about you? What, what do you have favourites? One of the things that I found really, really, truly wonderful about the Crabs novels is that sense of location, because he writes about real places. Yeah. And just again, we were doing um, Crabs on the Rampage. We were talking about it at the weekend. It kicks off at a location that we're very familiar with because we drive through it twice a year, going to Great Yarmouth. The Night of the Crabs and Crabs Moon, which we covered previously. Set in and around Barmouth, and 
myself and my other half, Phil, we actually went on holiday to Barmouth on the back of the Night of the Crabs books. And I love the fact that everything is so vivid. So it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that at some point in his oeuvre, there's a book actually literally set in your house. It's absolutely fantastic. And I think that's probably what makes these books touch a nerve for people who disapprove of them a little bit more. Because if you've got that real sense of place and location and character and the passion for things that are actually real world things, they're not just analogues, he's writing about things he knows, it makes them much closer to home. You know, and it's when you read a lot of these books, there, there's always a, a level of disaster, and we've commented on the podcast fairly frequently that one of our favourite genres of book is the Britain is Fucked book, like the huge catastrophe which is you know the very opposite of the cozy catastrophe of john Wyndham. it's people having their eyeballs eaten out of their heads by terrible critters in real places just down the road outside your house and that's one of the things that makes them so incredibly appealing now i've so far i've read three of the crabs books i'm going to read the other ones and um i think i read half of war i'm still only halfway through warhead which is, for anybody who's listening, it's a combination of um, nuclear apocalypse threat and voodoo. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible juxtaposition of ideas. Uh, but, Graham, you've read tons of Guy and Smith. What are your favourites? Yeah, I think I really like Bats Out of Hell. Um, that, that's a, a really good book. There's not that much sex in it either. It, it, it's just a <laughs> it's just quite a solid read, and it's um, quite it's an interesting interesting read that one um and i recently reread uh manitou doll which is just again very crazy uh but I, the reason i like that is it's very british set on a you know in the on a seaside town and there's hell's angels in it and it's it's got some sort of it's just got a crazy idea in it and it's quite unsettling as a story um of course you know the crabs books are just amazing the and the john mayo books the um, actually, I don't want to spoil that for somebody because uh, there is an element of not knowing who somebody is, so I should, yeah. probably, should be careful what I say. But um, the Night and Vampires set in Knighton, which was seven miles from where we lived, and the descriptions are perfect. It's just like you're walking, you know, up the street past the clock tower, and the clock tower, there's a scene. Uh, again, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it, but, you know, once you've seen that clock tower, and you know what happens in that book. I, I can't walk past it now without <laughs> wanting to have a look inside and see if it's really, <laughs> if it really happened. Um, so I love that. And, and Bats Out of Hell in particular, you know, a lot of that happens in the Midlands. Um, and I also love the, the, the fact that he seemed to understand, I mean, I guess he'd done his research, but he seemed to understand what would happen in terms of law and order um in, in a pandemic and the kind of the the lockdown type situation um i just thought gosh he, he got you know he obviously he, he took it a little bit for, you know to a further extreme than fortunate fortunately we ever had in the uk but there was that that was the logical conclusion i suppose of what might have happened if people had you know decided to stand up to the police and break through and you know not not being closed in a particular area um so I was very struck by that. Of course, I'm biased, and I'm bound to think that you know my dad was a prophet. Um, and uh, but I think he just he, he did his research. He was he didn't always stick to his 
synopses. He did he did meticulously plan a lot of his books, um, which I think has led to a lot of people describing his books as formulaic. But as um, I don't know if you've come across Hal C.F. Austell's um, writing about Dad, he's um, got a website I think it was called Smithland or Guy and oh, yeah. um, and he's compared a lot of the books to to the synopses and found that actually Dad didn't stick to them and just you know went off piste if that's how he felt and that's what his <laughs> brain told him to do he just followed his flight to fancy and that's where you get the slight craziness but I I love that why not you mentioned the sort of the research and considering the sort of the, the different types of writings your 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 dad did and when he was doing it you know there wasn't the internet and things like that how did he go about doing his research well um we have a house i've given some of them to um well we have a house full of scrapbooks still um we haven't so we haven't sold the family home yet it's been on the market but it hasn't been great for house sales in the uk um and we just got floor to floor shelves of huge scrapbooks filled with newspaper cuttings. So dad would put together these scrapbooks long before he ever, in some cases, decided to write the, a novel. He'd just think, oh, you know, I'm quite interested in the sorts of diseases that bats carry. I think I'll start a scrapbook on bats. Or I think, um, you know, I, I up in the attic, I found a whole trunk full of scrapbooks on serial killers. And just lots and lots of um, newspaper cuttings. So I think that was his favourite um, way of doing research. He would obviously go and acquire books or people would send him books. But as far as I can see, most of it was newspaper cuttings. We actually looked at that house. <laughs> when we, we saw it, was up for, when we saw it was up for sale. Not we're not stalking you or anything, <laughs> but we actually looked at the house and thought, mm, "That would be so cool." <laughs> Number one, it's a great. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a fantastic house. Also, we happen to know that I think the sucking pit might have been written about something about hundred yards behind the house, which is also quite exciting. Yeah. But also, at one point on eBay, somebody was selling your dad's old Amstrad word processor and 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 all his old manuals and some other bits and pieces and <laughs> i think we were we were numbing an iron over that for a long time weren't we graham we were we were <laughs> oh yeah amazing now you mentioned earlier that um of course as part of looking after your dad's estate it's about things like print and of course we're seasoned now at looking at guy and smith books on ebay and seeing just how much some of them go for and how valuable some of them are and you know i think if you've got a a Guy and Smith gold prize double bill. It's probably Bamboo Gorillas and the Song of the South novelization. South, but I have got, yeah, I've got Bamboo, both um, Bamboo Gorillas and the Two Truckers novels. Mm. Uh, and I just, I just acquired, although it's at my mum's house, I'm going to pick it up next time I'm in the UK. I just um, acquired The Ghoul. Here's a. Uh. Um, and I think it's signed actually as well because there, we did have one copy in. So Dad had a lockable cabinet for his his all his signed first editions of his own books, and that's that's for the family. So my mum and my three siblings and I to decide what to do with. But the only ghoul that we owned was in there, and I mean, getting the rights for that is probably almost impossible. But people do ask me about that because maybe one day we'll be able to reprint it. Mm. Um, but I did. I just didn't have a copy. And then um, one of the fans was 
selling one and the sale fell through and I just said to him look if that sale falls through I'll guarantee it I'll I'll, I'll buy it off you and um I, I got lucky so I have to I, I have got a copy of that to bring back um next time um I visit and I, I've got quite a decent collection here we are going to republish and I feel you know I terrible about the fact that I think probably because you can't buy um, most of his books on Kindle anymore um, or the you know the print on demand paperbacks that were on Amazon that has probably sent the price of you know his original um, 1970s and 80s paperbacks absolutely skyrocketing mm. um, so I do feel a bit bad for people on that score but there was a good reason to do it which I can't yeah. I can talk about it, but only in general terms. Yeah, it makes it more exciting for people like us to, you know, see something on eBay and, and get a little bundle for a decent price, which I know mm. Graham has done on quite a few I've done occasions. That. And I did recently manage to get a copy of the Pony Rider for a cheap, cheap. So that's another great book that yeah. I just think lots of people don't—they just don't know it exists. But mm. writing is lovely. Yeah, I've not read it yet, so All right. I, yeah, I've been trying, been trying to get it for a while, and I saw it. Uh, a really reasonable price, actually. I think it was £6, which I couldn't believe. It's all about being Johnny on the spot with these things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think there's still, there's probably still a few left in charity shops around the country that people could pick up for, you know, 50p or something. I'm sure yeah. they're still... Yeah, a few of the uh, second-hand bookshops that I've frequented over the years, that they're wise to it now as well. The last time I was in the old Pier bookshop in Markham, which is one of my favourite second-hand bookshops, I said to the proprietor, have you got any guy in Smith? And he went... Ooh, well, <laughs> I, I suspect he gets them in and he puts he puts them on eBay for a decent price and probably gets a decent price for them. But, of course, you mentioned that you are um, looking to get them back in print. He, he wrote books in the end for so many different publishers because he was writing so quickly. I think famously NEL couldn't publish everything he wrote because he had that deal with them, so he ended up writing for other horror publishers as well. Are the rights issues complex for a lot of his works? <clears throat> Well, no, I mean, we. The he had got the rights back to for most of them, but it's yeah, it's it's a bit sensitive. It, it, the obviously when new tech comes in, we don't always know what what the legal issues are going to be in the future. It's like with AI now. Mm. Um, of course, we can all say yes. We're so desperate to publish that we'll just say yes to things without realizing what we're getting into. Um, and of course, a Kindle book is there forever, um, unless you decide to take it down. Um, so when dad, dad hadn't been uh, totally happy with the situation that he was in regarding his ebook and Amazon print on demand sales for quite a long time um, for various reasons. And um, so we all knew this and listened to him complaining about it, but he couldn't, he did try and do something about it at one point but it didn't happen. And so it carried on. And so when, when he passed away and I, I said, okay, I'll, t I'll take over the running of the estate. And uh, we, I think we did at first think we'll just keep everything as it is. Um, but it just became apparent that it wasn't going to work for mm. us. The, the way the business was set up, the, the rights were inherited by my mum. Um, and we wanted to protect her because you just never know um, <clears throat> if everything's been done in the right way. 
So we set up a limited company. We, so dad's own publishing company was Black Hill Books. Mm. So we kept the name and we essentially turned it into a limited company um, with my mum as the majority shareholder. And my three siblings and I have got the sort of 48% split between four of us. And that is so that if there, well, it originally was so that if there was any problem with any of images used in books, for those book covers that might not have um, been done in the right way, I'm, I'm trying to be really diplomatic, that, that none of that would come back primarily on mum, that mm. she would, nobody could sue mum for something. And so it would just be the entity, the limited company that would go bankrupt or take the hit. But that meant changing the way the sales income was structured. Mm. And that was when we had a bit of an issue and a bit of a disagreement. So we had to, yeah, we had to change everything and start again. Um, and nobody, nobody was trying to be criminal. There was no, there's no implication that there was any criminal, criminality. It was just a, we just had to look into the future and say, mm. do we want to be in this situation for the rest of our lives? And the answer was no, we don't. We 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 want this to be sorted out as Dad had wanted sorted out, but couldn't. So that is why everything came down. And we ha I have start. I've been working on finding an artist for the Crabs books. Um, I have um, edited Night of the Crabs again, <laughs> um, and you know that is that's i've got some i've got editing training i've got proofreading and editorial um qualifications and um i'm not an expert but i think i know enough but yeah it's a it throws up some interesting issues because in some of the new english library books i think they were churned out so quickly that some of them were not entirely proofread properly or at all in some cases i'm not sure if they were proofread and so i found typos and missing full stops and um, yeah, a few errors. And of course I want to put those right, but I want to preserve, I want to preserve the book as much as possible as it, as it was. But once you start changing things, then you are, you're, you're on thin ice mm. <laughs> and I don't want to, I don't want to sanitize them. I don't want to, you know, the old fashioned word of bowdlerizing. I'm not going to start um, making a sexist character right mm. on. It wouldn't make any sense for the era. Um, and then in any case, the, well, the, the views of people today are not going to be the same views in 50 years. So whatever I change today might be wrong in 50 years time. So, so as much as possible, trying to keep them intact as they are. <laughs> but I can see, yeah, I can, I can see that I could come under some fire for, um, you know, for some of the less politically correct aspects of the books, but mm. it is what it is. They are what they are and they, that's how they're going to stay as if I have any control over it anyway. Well, you know what, James Herbert's books are still in print and none of those have been changed. Right. And you know, they're, they're equally saucy <laughs> um, and e equally sometimes of their time. I, th I think you're right not to change the authentic voice of, of his writing. Um, but of course, there are a lot of conversations about that going on as well out there about sensitivity readers being applied to to older writing. But at the end of the day, it's a choice, and I don't think Guy and Smith's audience particularly would welcome it, if that no. makes sense. You know, and I think also you, you know you, you mentioned that you've got um, the training. I, th I think Guy's writing was so authentic and 
personal, I think it's only fitting and right that you should be the person who actually does the editing and the proofreading and, and keeps that authentic voice intact. I mean, in, in case at times, you know, it's, there are his turns of phrase as a person, mm. Mm. Um, even if some things are a little bit, you know, um, uh, old fashioned now or anachronistic or just a bit unusual. I think, well, that yeah, I remember dad saying that. And, mm. um, and also it's also in part the, the Midland accent or the Midland syntax. Mm. Um, so, so I'm, yeah, I'm going to try and keep them um as close to the original so as i can but mm. if i do see a a typo or a missing full stop i am going to put it in <laughs> yeah. so where can people keep an eye on on your progress with all this stuff because i know that you've got your guy in smith newsletter and you've got your presence on instagram and twitter well formally known as twitter yeah, anywhere. I, I haven't been back on twitter for a bit not not yeah. because of this thing just because yeah. there's just so many platforms there's Substack and there's good reads and everything and oh, after a while it becomes overwhelming so i tend to focus there's there's his facebook page there's a couple of facebook groups there's the one that i set up which is diane smith and fiends and then there's the diane smith appreciation society facebook group and the obviously instagram um the website is we got we finally got did get the domain name back but it took a long time that has to go up again quite soon because I think it needs to be up in time for the relaunch of Night of the Crabs. Um, so that will be, at least initially, it won't be a sales platform. It will be more about, it'll be a blog or articles, mm. probably guest writers and um, announcements, press release type announcements of, you know, this book's being reprinted. But eventually, yes, um, I hope uh, Amazon books hopefully will We'll, we'll be back on Amazon um, and Audible as well. <laughs> so I do have a narrator lined up, a very good narrator lined up for the Night of the Crabs audiobook. And I'm hoping to keep the same artist for the cover art and the same narrator for the, the series, uh, if possible. But obviously things are never certain, but that's... So I'm focusing on the Crabs series first. Yeah. So I think there's eight books if you include the, the Crabs um omnibus yeah, yeah. that's another crabs book that that isn't under um black hill books which is under sinister horror which which was charnel caves so yeah. that will that will stay as it is um but the other eight um i keep counting it is definitely eight so night of the crabs killer crabs origin of the crabs crabs on the rampage crabs moon human sacrifice uh, killer crabs the return and the omnibus that those are the the focus for now um, and then we'll see but but i do aim even if oh, God, i don't know it's going to take me about 20 years but <laughs> i do aim to get them all back out there yeah definitely well it's, it's tremendously exciting for us i mean we've already jumped the gun and picked up our old nel editions um but it's tremendously exciting to think that these things will actually be out there and people will have to pay uh, an arm and a leg to actually be able to get hold of them and and read them again well we wish you all the luck in the world and if you send me the links to all the things you've described i'll put them in the show notes so people can access them and i think it's a great thing that you're doing and i can't wait myself personally to read a little bit more guy and smith i am actually 
hoping to get hold of a couple of the Sabbat novels because I've had my eye on them for quite a while. Not only because I love crazy covers with guys with huge moustaches as heroes. That's always really attractive. And actually two of them are in a, a huge bundle that's currently for sale on eBay, a bundle of about 25. So I'm keeping an eye on that. That ends tomorrow. <laughs> so, and, and I know Graham ain't got some of them. There are some duplicates in there. So yeah, yeah. hopefully we'll pick that up. But Tara... Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about your dad and all of his work. And uh, Graham, do you have anything else you want to ask? Uh, no, uh, but yeah, thank you very much. It's been a, a real pleasure, and um, it's it's great to see his legacy carrying on. And you know, it's yeah, it'd be it'd be good also to, if there's an opportunity in the future just to have some of his other stuff that's been printed outside of his horror. In, in, in a sort of omnibus form, you know, some of his stuff for country living or uh, was it country living or where it was? Yeah, I am hoping, I, I, gosh, there's so much he wrote for Shooting Time. So he also yeah. wrote for Compliments Weekly, about 8,000 articles. It's incredible. Um, I, I'm not sure of the right situation with those, but I do have that in mind. I did want to, I suddenly thought I, I wanted to give a little plug to, um, I'm going to do a, a reading at Tamworth Castle Museum next week actually it's um the 28th of october they've because we donated some of dad's family's stuff that we found in the attic um photos and stuff to tamworth castle because the wheel family which was dad's mum's family were um sort of the, the only professional photographers in tamworth and they were and um my dad's grandfather was mayor of tamworth so we gave them all this stuff and talked a bit about dad and they said, oh, come and read at our Gothic Literary Festival. So I'm flying back to the UK to do that. So I think it's 4.45 um, at Tamworth Castle um, on Saturday, the 28th of October. And I'm going to read from Accursed and also one of his short stories that was originally published in London Mystery Magazine. I think it was his second one that he got printed. It's called the mummy so it's all they're connected because they're they're both based on the same story of a, a vicar who actually existed in tamworth who brought these egyptian mummies back from egypt and they started to stink so he buried them and you can imagine <laughs> dad's imagination was just wild so i'm going to just mention that and i'm going to talk a little bit about um i'm going to read the mummy and i'm going to uh read a, a little excerpt of accursed I have to get a bit of Night of the Crabs in there because it's that's his most famous book. And I'm going to try and squeeze in a ghost story, which theoretically is a true family ghost story called Hocklington's Walk. So if anybody fancies coming along to Tamworth Castle, um, I'll be there. They can they can ask me some questions afterwards if, if I can answer them. <laughs> I don't have a degree in dad, but maybe one. <laughs> that. Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm now kicking myself for living in New Yorkshire. But yeah. We will uh, we will get the word out there. Well, thank you so much. Oh, and also, we should also plug that Guy's grandson actually has a band called Bamboo Gorillas. Yes, he does. He does. Um, and, yeah, you can you can get his songs and um, his album's called Hope, um, and it's available on all the usual platforms. And, you know, I know he's my brother, but he's fantastic. Um, so I, I really recommend, if you like a bit of, you know, Heavy metal, bit of rock. Uh, I think you'll like his songs. Yeah. Oh, so it's his son, not his grandson. I got that wrong. It's, 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 it's dad's son. It's my brother. Yeah. yeah. He's got yeah. gorillas. His um, Gavin's son. Uh, I don't think he is a musician actually of any kind. But um, sorry, I probably put my foot in it there. Perhaps he does play. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
don't think Gravy plays. But um, no, Gavin is a is a musician, you know, through and through. So I can recommend his work. Yeah, fortunately, this is this is like an old nerds podcast, so you probably won't hear you say it. <laughs> don't worry. All right. Well, thanks again, Tara. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Brilliant. Enjoy Halloween when it comes to. Massive thanks to Graham and particularly to Tara for taking the time to indulge our nerdy passions and talk about her late dad at such length. After we recorded this, Tara dropped me a line to issue a correction. When she showed us a book and said this is one everyone wants, she showed us an anthology called Creature Feature, when she should have showed us Crab's Fury, a graphic novel with artwork by Charlie Abelard. Thanks, Tara. Now I have another grail book to obsess over. Eight days from the upload of this episode, Tara will be at Tamworth Castle's Tales from the Dark Side Week, where she'll be reading from her dad's books in An Ode to Guy Newman Smith's 1970s Pulp Fiction Horror. And you can find the details at tamworthcastle.co.uk forward slash darkside. The next Guy and Smith newsletter is due out soon, and you can jump on the mailing list for that by emailing Tara at blackhillbooks at gmail.com. You can also check out the Guy and Smith YouTube channel, it's under the handle Guy and Smith 514, and the official website will soon be back up and running at guyandsmith.com. Also, Guy's son Gavin's band, named for one of his rarest genre novels, Bamboo Gorillas, are on Spotify and Bandcamp, and you can find them on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok too. Stay tuned as we'll play this show out with their track, Jail of My Doubts, from their 2023 debut album, Hope. And finally, and naturally, thanks as always to our patrons for keeping the show on the road. Those without tear, Anthony Picanti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster and Sebastian Weetabix. Our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Bill O'Cat, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner-Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Arthur Ziv, Paul McRandall, PJ Cooper, Scott Butler and Simon Perrins, and to our crafty jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Elio Westenra, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Graham Holden and Toby White, and of course eternal thanks to our patron demons, Tone Malazzo, Alistair Davison, Andy Clark, Andy Darby, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, Imria, Jenny Stim, Jason Vogel, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Lee Gary, Mark Hebden, Marius Latowskis, Miles Reed Labato, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but never least, Robert McMillan. Next time, the Halloween season continues and Phil and Miles will be back for the patron-selected uncozy catastrophe of Domain, coming soon to a podcatcher near you. But for now, enough from me. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. B-I-T-I, Breakfast in the Ruins Radio, is live on Radio Garden or via the web player at breakfastintheruinsradio.blogspot.com. We have our Patreon page too, there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. <laughs>